This morning's sermon text comes from Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Father, I ask for your help now as we undertake to get as close to the center and the essence of the Christian life as I know how to get. Because I think verse 4 and verse 6 are as close to a summary of Christian living as there is in the New Testament. And there's a way to live this life that is heaven-bound and fruitful. And there's a way to try to live it that looks right and makes shipwreck of our lives. And so I pray that you'd help me and us to get it right, to see it for what the Apostle Paul means it to be, what you mean it to be in him. So, Lord, come, please, and grant me your assistance and give us a riveted, focused attention on your revealed word and its true meaning in biblical proportions with hearts responding in right affections. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here we are now, two weeks since the last time we were together. And uh, let me remind you what we did and said there. From verse 5, last time we were together, I said that when the law of God meets the flesh... In the hands of the flesh, the law becomes an instrument to defeat its own demands. Remember that? When the flesh, which is who I am and who you are by nature, apart from the Holy Spirit and apart from faith, when that flesh meets the law, Instead of a wonderful salvation happening, what happens is the law is grasped 
prostituted and made an instrument of death and bondage. Let me read verse 5 so you can see where I'm getting this. For while we were in the flesh, our sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, there it is, the law's complicity in this, or literally the passions of sins through the law, so the law was an instrument of this death-dealing work, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So, law and sin partner to destroy. Why? Well, I said that because the essence of the flesh is self-deification. We, by nature, are not just law-breakers, we are law-haters. We do not want to be told what to do. We hate submission. We don't want anybody ruling over us, dictating to us how to live our lives. That's the flesh. And when the law of commandments meets this flesh, the result is not the fruit of love, it's the fruit of death, according to verse 5. Therefore, Paul says in verse 4, the solution... To the Christian life is to die to the law. Let's read verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. That is, when Christ died, believers in him were united to him and his death became our death. And in that sense, we died to the law. We went out of existence in relationship to the law. So that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So what's the key to the Christian life of fruit-bearing and love and Christ-likeness? Answer, death to the law and union with Christ instead of union with the law. The key to a life of fruit-bearing love is a personal, spirit-dependent, all-satisfying relationship with the living Christ. You die to this, why? in order that you might belong to another, namely a living one who's alive from the dead. It's a, a communion with, a relationship with, a living in and upon the person of Jesus Christ that is the key to the Christian life. Now, let's try to get practical today and see if we can flesh out how to live this life and what this means. To start, I want to compare verse 4 of chapter 7 with verse 22 of chapter 6. Let me read verse 22 of chapter 6 of Romans. But now, having been freed from sin and, positively now, 
enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. Now, literally, and we need the literal translation to see the parallel with verse 4, you have your fruit. That's the literal translation of you derive your benefit. You have your fruit, because the word fruit is the link up with chapter 7, verse 4, and oh, how I wish the English versions preserved it so you could see it, because it's crucial. You have your fruit now that you become enslaved to God, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. Now, let me draw out three parallels between 6.22 and 7.4. Number one. Having been freed from sin in 22 corresponds to you were made to die to the law in verse 4 of chapter 7. I'll come back to that. Second, you were enslaved to God, verse 22, corresponds you belong to another in verse 4 of chapter 7. Third, you derive your benefit or you have your fruit... Verse 22 corresponds to, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So here are the parallels. Freed from sin, dead to law. And slave to God, belong to Christ. Bear fruit to holiness, bear fruit for God. Now here's a question. Why do I think freed from sin, in verse 22 is parallel to die to law in verse 4. It'll sound the same. Dying to law, freed from sin. Why Why do I say those are counterparts in these two verses? And the reason is because of verse 5. And what sin does with the law. We've already seen that sin takes the law and makes it an instrument of bearing fruit for death. So there's a very close connection between law and sin. They are partners in our bondage. They partner to make us bear fruit for death. So if we are going to be freed from sin, like verse 22 says we are, we got to be freed from law. And verse 4 says you died a law to get freed from law. And so death to law and freed from sin are, in my mind, parallel because of the way sin deals with law. It makes it an instrument of our bondage and our destruction. The letter kills. Now, here's a question that rises. How in the world can I talk about the holy, just, and good law of God like that? A partner with sin kills us, holds us in bondage. How can you talk like that about God's holy, just, and good law? Sounds like blasphemy. And the answer is, I talk like that about God's holy, just, and good law because Paul talks like that about God's holy, just, and good law. Not only does he talk like that here in verse 5, where he says that through the law, sin bears fruit for death. 
Paul said that. I didn't say that. He also says it in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The power of sin is the law of God. Wow. And that's true, not just in law's ability to condemn me for sinning. It's true of the law's ability and function to hold me in bondage under sinning, which is what verse 5 is about in our text. And he not only says it in Romans 7, 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, 56, he also says it in Galatians 3, 22, which goes like this. The scripture, and we know from the context, the scripture refers to law here. The scripture has shut up everyone under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So here you have the law like a prison shutting people into sin. Clamping down on them, holding them in sin. Verse 23 of Galatians 3. But before faith came, that is before Christ and faith in Him as our Redeemer from the law, before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up. There's that word lock in again. Shut up to faith, which was later to be revealed. So, the holy, just, and good law of God, by God's design, has a temporary imprisoning effect on us to hold us in the bondage to sin. So I talk that way because the Bible talks that way. Now the crucial point is this. Freedom from sin into a life of fruit-bearing love does not come through the law. It comes by dying to the law and its partner, sin, so that you can belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, or as verse 22 says, to the Father. We are enslaved to God, God the Father. Or, as Romans 8, 9 says, to the Holy Spirit. You are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, if the Spirit of God really dwells in you. So you can talk about this new relationship in terms of the Father, 6.22, the Son, 7.4, or the Spirit, Romans 8, 9. It's a Trinitarian salvation. But the issue is this. Do we move into a life of fruit-bearing, Christ-like love, By law-keeping or by dying to the law and being united to a person, a living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And verse 4 says, it's by the person. It's by the person. It's by the person. The letter kills. The Spirit makes alive. Now, let's try to get even more practical here. Here's the test. 
Why is it that we must die to the law if our aim is to bear the fruit of love and the Bible teaches that love is the fulfillment of the law? Why die to the thing you're trying to fulfill? That makes sense. Let me show you where I'm getting this idea that love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13, 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves has fulfilled the law. Or Romans 13, 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Or Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So why die to the very thing whose fulfillment we long? We long for the fulfillment of the law. We want to love people. That's what life is for. Christians are to be like Jesus and love people, love their enemies, love their friends, love every color, love every shape, love every smell, love every socioeconomic standing. We are to be a loving people. And that's the fulfillment of the law. So why die to the law? Now, if we could answer that question, we might have the key to the Christian life. So let me give you my answer in a sentence and then uh, develop a picture to try to explain it. Why die to the very thing we long to fulfill? Answer, God has ordained that the goal of the law be fulfilled not by law-keeping but Christ-loving. I'll say it again. God has ordained... That the law be fulfilled, not by law-keeping, but by Christ-loving. That takes some explaining. Let's try a picture. And I'll tell you right off the bat, this is a bad picture. It's a good picture and a bad picture. It's got a truth in it. I'll hold on to it for the truth. It's got a falsehood in it. I'll reject it at the end because of the falsehood. So get yourself set up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use a picture. I'm gonna like the picture. I'm gonna say it's helpful. I'm gonna reject it in the end. Alright? You ready? Here's the picture. Um, the law is like a house. Got a front door and a back door. And in the house is the treasure of love. And we want it. We want into the law so that we can love. Like Jesus loves. The front door has got a huge padlock on it. And listed on the door is the combination to the lock. Thou shalt not steal. Two clicks to the left. Thou shalt not kill. Two clicks to the right. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Two, three clicks to the left. Do not covet. Three clicks to the right. Nobody has ever or ever will 
get through that door into this house to become a loving person by going to the commandments and performing them in order to get this law open to become a loving person. What has to happen then? Any way in? There's a back door. And the text says you've got to die to this front door. You've got to die to the law. So, by trusting Christ, you identify with him, and as he dies on the cross, you die in him. He rose from the dead, and you rise from the dead in him. So, I picture him walking around the house from the back door where he stands, and he picks you up and raises you from the dead, and he holds you. And he looks at you and he says, you like this? I've got you. You're mine. He smiles at us. He loves us. Now, you better like this. Because if you don't like this, and you say, no, I don't like this. I don't like to be carried. He'll put you down and leave you fiddling with that lock the rest of eternity. But if you like him, if you love him, love him, trust him, stay in his arms... He carry you around the house to the back door. And he walks through the back door, carrying you into the house where love is. And in his arms, learning from him, being shaped by him, being defined by him, becoming like him, you enter the house and you experience love for people, which fulfills the law. That's the picture. To fulfill the law of God, you've got to die to the law as law-keeping and come to life, as verse 4 says, be attached to not a list but a person, not a written law but a living being. You ride in Him, you know Him, you love Him, you trust Him, you see Him, you savor Him, you rest in Him, He becomes your all, you live in Him. And thus, your mind becomes transformed by Him, and you're able to prove what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect, and you wind up fulfilling the law in relationship with a person, not a list. What's wrong with the picture? It's a very dangerous picture. Because the picture puts the law at the center and makes Christ the servant of the law. Instead of putting Christ at the center and making the law the servant of Christ. Such a delicate difference here. Try to get with me here. Put it in other words. The picture makes the law the goal of our being in Christ instead of making our being in Christ the goal of the law. And the danger here is that we may want to get into this house, this house of law, this house of commandments. And once we get in, be so thankful, thank you Jesus, thank you, and leave him at the door. While we move from room to room using the keys he gave us. And we say, we finally got the law. 
We got where we wanted to be. We figured out the real meaning of the law. And now I can do the law. Thank you, Jesus. By the way, thank you. Something wrong there. There's something deeply, deeply wrong there. Oh, how easy for us to come so close to getting the Christian life right. Newness of the Spirit, not oldness of the letter. Christ, not law. And then fall right back into the old legal way with Christ as the new list giver. Or the one who gave us the key to all the rooms in the house so that we can enjoy the law. Doing the law. Finally, I can do the law. And he's out there. He's out there at the door. I don't think that's what verse 4 means here in our text. I just don't think that's what it means. Die to the law, it says, so that we can belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead. I don't think that verse means die to the law so that you can belong to the one who will cause you to now belong to the law. That verse does not mean die to the law so that you can belong to him who can figure out the law and give you the keys to the law and now hand you over to good law keeping. That's not what it says. And it's not what it means. It skews things terribly to make Christ a means to the law instead of the law a means to a relationship with Christ. So, how do we say it? Well, we say it the way verse 4 says it and the way Galatians 3 says it. The law is not the goal of history. Christ is the goal of history. The law is not the goal of your life. Christ is the goal of your life. Christ did not come into history to lead us to the law. The law came into history to lead us to Christ. The law is not the goal of Christ. Christ is the goal of the law. Or to change the image, marriage is not for the sake of the vows. The vows are for the sake of the marriage. The relationship. You don't marry to say, now good, I can, I can keep vows. That's not the point of the vows. The Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. Vows are to free and enable and protect a thing personal, sweet, deep, indescribable that can't be put into any lists. It's called marriage. That's the analogy in Romans 7, 1 to 4. Marriage. Marriage. So, key question. What do Christians do with God's holy, just, and good law? 
We do anything with it? We die to it as law-keeping? We're dead to it? We don't exist to it? We belong wholly to Jesus? We devote all our time to knowing Him and loving Him and trusting Him and seeing Him and savoring Him and walking with Him and resting with Him and being shaped by Him and defined by Him and controlled by Him. He's our everything. Christ is all and in all. And thus we become loving people and thus we, through the back door, fulfill the law. But but do we do anything with the written law? Should you ever look at it? Here's my answer to that question. I have two answers. One, we should look into the written law to see Christ. To know Him and trust Him and love Him more. Remember what Jesus said in John 5.39? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they which speak of me. Yeah. Go there. To find me. Not a new list. Or do you remember the, 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 the Emmaus Road? Jesus comes up to these two guys. What are, you, what are you all upset about? Oh, haven't you heard? We thought the Christ had come, and now he's dead. And Jesus said, Oh, you slow of heart to believe all that was written in the prophets and the law. And then Luke comments, And he opened to them all that the scriptures had to say about himself. First thing we do with the law now is we read it to know God in Christ, to know a person and love him more, trust him more. That's why you read the Bible. Second, you look into the law in order to test to see if you do know him, trust him and love him as you ought. Because Jesus said, if you love me, You'll keep my commandments. Don't ever turn that around. So many people who don't get the personal relationship of Christianity turn it around and say, keeping commandments is loving Jesus. It's not. If you try to reduce love to Jesus, to commandment keeping, you're right back at the front door fiddling with that lock. What the text says is, if you love me, If I carry you and you love being carried, if you see into my face and love what you see, if you trust me and know me and depend upon me and my cross and my resurrection to make you right with God and to fill you with everything you need filling with, you'll fulfill the law. You'll be perfect in this age, not by a long shot. That's why I taught you to pray every day. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You'll never be perfect in this life, but you'll you'll begin to become a loving person with me. You love me. And that'll be the fulfilling of the law. So we read the Bible, the Old Testament and the New, to... Use the litmus paper of the Bible to test the authenticity of our affections for Jesus. 
Let me close with what I think is the clearest, most um, powerful statement of how this works in practical life in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I invite you to go there with me. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. If you want to turn over two books. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll start at verse 6, and I'll walk you through this chapter, and we'll climax with this incredibly powerful and important verse 18. But let's start at verse 6. God made us adequate servants of a new covenant, not in the letter, but in the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So here we are exactly where we were in Romans 7, 4, and 6. The newness of the Spirit, not the oldness of the letter. And he says, God has enabled us to minister the new covenant because we are ministering in the power of the Spirit, in the sphere of the Spirit, in relationship to the Spirit, not in the power of the letter, in the power of the law, or in relationship to a list. There's two ways of living the Christian life. One of them fails, the other succeeds. One brings death, the other brings life. And I'm summoning you this morning to understand and to walk in the Spirit, relationship to Christ, relationship to God the Father, not relationship to a list. Now, what does he do after he sets that up? Law versus Spirit. Letter versus Spirit. He says that the Old Covenant was given through Moses with tremendous glory on Mount Sinai. And if that first covenant was given with such glory, the new covenant is going to come with more glory. And we'll see what that is in just a minute. But he says Moses, while he was up there receiving the old covenant, his face shone with the glory of that covenant. And as he came down the mountain, he put a veil over his face so that the people wouldn't see the fading of the glory and the goal of the old covenant. And then Paul takes that veil and he says, now here's what that's an illustration of. He says, it's like the veil that hangs over all of our minds, the Jewish mind and the Gentile mind. It hangs over our mind and it keeps us from seeing the glory and the goal of the old covenant. Now, how does Christ relate to that problem? Verse 14. Let's start reading at verse 14. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. In other words, in Christ now, in relation to Christ, in union with Christ, we see the goal and the glory of the Old Covenant. But to this day, he says, verse 15, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But when a person turns to the Lord, oh, that's key, to the Lord, away from the law, to the Lord, when you turn to the Lord, away from Sinai, to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And then he explains a little further. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, death to the law, freedom from the law, liberty. 
Now, that's what happens to Christians who become participants in the new covenant. They turn to Christ, not the law. The veil is lifted. Now, if you say, where do they turn to Christ? Where is he? Where is he? You gotta read into chapter four, verse four, verse six. The light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, is in the gospel. When the gospel of Christ crucified is preached and risen, you see, if the veil is lifted, you see the glory of Christ. That's the superior glory that is beyond the glory that was seen on Mount Sinai. But let's, let's leave chapter 4 for a minute. Here we are. We're looking at the old covenant, the law. There's a veil that keeps us from seeing its glory and its goal. And now Paul says, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. So we turn away from that. To see Christ dying for us, rising for us, our King, our Lord, reigning, coming. And the veil is lifted to that. Now what do we see? What is that glory? Now, verse 18. This is the key to the Christian life. We all... With unveiled face. So the veil is lifted now. And what do we see? We all with unveiled face. Beholding. As in a mirror. The glory. Of the Lord. That's what you see. Don't turn away from that. To the list. The meaning, the goal, the glory of the old covenant is the glory of the Lord Jesus. It's all pointing to the Lord Jesus. The law came in to hold us in sin so that Jesus would come and the eyes would open to the Lord, crucified, risen, reigning. Don't take your eyes off the glory of the Lord Jesus. Why? And we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You want to become a loving person? You want to become a Christ-like person? You want to be conformed to the image of Christ? And so you've been looking to the old covenant with the mosaic lists. And there's been this veil. And now Paul says, you want a key? Look to Jesus. The veil goes up and what do you see? Jesus. The glory of Jesus, the glory of the Lord is what you see. And that's what the old covenant was all pointing toward. And therefore, if you're going to use it, go there to find Jesus. Go there to see the glory of the Lord Jesus. These things are written about me. 
Go there to find Christ. Go there to get to know Him better. Go there to get to know your need for Him more. But don't go there to refine your list and get your lock-keeping finesse down. Stay with Jesus. He'll get you through the back door. Stay with Jesus. Know Jesus. Love Jesus. Trust Jesus. Let everything in your life be aimed at knowing and trusting and loving Jesus. If you go skiing this afternoon on that new snow, do it to see Jesus. If you open your Bible on any page today, do it to know Jesus better. If you have any conversation with any believer today, do it to get to know Jesus better. Let everything in life be Christ. Because if you know Him, and if you trust Him, and if you love Him, verse 18 says, Seeing and savoring Jesus is to be changed into His image. You become what you behold. You become what you behold. You become what you behold. Watch your television. Watch your newspapers. Watch your magazines. Watch your leisure. Because you become what you behold. If you want to live a life of love, if you want to be a Christ-exalting, Christ-mirroring, sacrificial-loving person, devote your life to seeing Jesus. Devote your life to knowing Jesus. Use your Bible to get to Jesus. Don't use Jesus to become an expert combination. Don't turn it around. The relationship is everything. Let's pray. Father, this is the essence as close as I know to get to it of what it is to be a Christian. And so I'm pleading with you to send your Holy Spirit into this room to open hearts, to see it, understand it, and live it. We're all wired to love lists. We're all wired to be legal. We're all wired to resist Submission to Jesus and loving Jesus and spending time with Jesus and enjoying Jesus and delighting in Jesus. We're all wired to go to the television and go to the newspaper and fill our minds with stuff we don't want to become. So, Lord, I'm asking for a miracle on us fallen, fleshly people. May we be crucified now with Christ. May we reckon ourselves dead with Him to sin and to the law and alive to God, alive to Christ in union and relationship and a marriage-like bond. I ask that you'd work this now in all those in this room. Would you stand with me? And we'll close in a benediction. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make His face to shine upon you. Why? Why do I say that at the end of services? May He make His face to shine upon you. 
I hope you can answer that. I'm not going to answer it. If you can't answer that, come up and we'll pray together. Why should he make his face to shine upon you? May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Why? Because it's the key to the rest of your day and life. You've got to see him. You've got to savor him. If you're going to become like him. To the glory of God. May God do it for all of us more and more. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.